All right, people, Jose Nino here again with another explosive episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, you guys are in for a treat because I have on the esteemed historian and renowned scholar of international affairs, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson. How are you today, Matthew? I'm doing real well. I really appreciate you having me on. I hadn't heard of you before, but we have some mutual friends and it's going to go well. Oh, indeed, because with so much insanity that's going down on the world stage, I think there's like no one better to have you on to make sense of this madness. I've listened to your interviews on Myth of the 20th Century and my friend Pete Quinones show, and you bring a very refreshing perspective to the issues of our time. Before we start talking about geopolitics and the issues of the day, such as like Israel, Hamas, et cetera, et cetera. Could you tell my audience about your overall career trajectory? Well, I got my PhD in political philosophy in 1999. I went to the University of Nebraska. I got, I got a fellowship to go there. I then went to work at the Barnes Review and the American Free Press, which was owned by Willis Cardo in Washington, D.C., I taught, well, I taught at Nebraska too, but I was a professor at several universities in the meantime. And then more recently, I've concentrated entirely on, on writing and, of course, my uh, lecture series, which is on Radio Albion, the owner of which is in uh, prison in, um, in Wales, UK, for, for thought crimes. So we're keeping it going in his absence. And I've been, I have 13 books out, something like that. I can never remember. And that's pretty much all I do. You know, this is really the only thing I'm, I'm uh, professionally that I've done. And all these, it's going to be, it's going to be 25, almost 30 years since I started. And uh, yes, I think, I think you're right. The, you know, predictions that have come true, the things that I created have influenced what we might call the nationalist movement uh, profoundly, or so I've been told. So that's, this is what I do. This is a full-time job. And this is kind of why I need, you know, the financial support. Universities aren't going to be hiring me anymore. So um, that's where I am. And that's where I'm always going to be. Right. Yeah. This type of content is definitely not legacy media or institution, for that matter, approved. Especially when we're talking about certain taboo subjects concerning Israel, the Jewish state. It's now, it's been in the news for the past month after Hamas's October 7th attack on it. What was your initial impression of the attacks that Hamas launched, and how do you see the overall situation playing out in Israel in the foreseeable future? Well, usually world historical events only occur when I'm going away on vacation. Every vacation, uh-huh. something huge. Going back to the early 90s, going back to the Iraq war, every time. So the first day I was gone, this this happened. For my honeymoon, the Ukraine war started. This has been going back as long as I can remember. So I ignored it for a week until I got back. Then I kind of caught up. And it's certainly a, a, a ballsy move. I rejected the thesis that this is somehow created by Israel. I think that's false in this particular case. You notice how ISIS has totally dropped out of the picture because they're as phony as, as you can get. And I guess the first systematic thought uh, that I had was this is a, a preemptive attack on Israel because of what Israel's been doing in the West Bank, specifically since the summer, and the invasion of Janine and, and all of that. But before this happens to them, they had to take action with the hopes that this is going to widen, which it already has, from Hezbollah and, and Yemen. And, you know, over the summer, well, I guess really even earlier than that, criticizing Israel became mainstream thanks to Netanyahu's attack on the judiciary and the so-called racist policies that he's instituting all over the place in his connection with the settler movement. He was under um, indictment for, believe it or not, manipulating the media, which made me laugh. And so to maintain his slight majority in the legislature, he had to bring all of these settler parties on, Jewish power and the the old Erglund-style, really essentially terrorist parties. They only have a handful of people in the Knesset because yeah, everything's ben, so close ben there. And that's what's keeping him out of jail. So that, that, that was my first set of thoughts when, when I got back. Yeah, that's actually interesting. Um, those were some of my initial thoughts too because I have noticed 
in Western coverage of Israel that, and this is kind of a breakthrough because the Likud has generally received a lot of praise, even from ostensibly Western liberal outlets for decades. But whenever they started pacting with these like really like freak show settler Haredim parties and even some of these like really reactionary Mizrahim parties, that's when you started to see somewhat of a shift among certain elements of the liberal uh, media elites in the West to start criticizing Israel. And I think we are reaching an interesting moment now because of the proliferation of alternative media that no longer can a lot of these like Zionist lobbies and like Jewish lobbies shut down dissenting thought like they could before. It it just seems that every time they censor someone or deplatform somebody that posts anti-Zionist content, there's like three other creators ready to take that role and take off. And I think that we have um we are reaching a point where the monolithic narrative that the Zionists were able to dominate is crumbling before our eyes. Well, there's been the the political criticism a few months ago over the um removal of certain powers from the Supreme Court and the judiciary in general. Uh, that was very real. You had huge demonstrations all throughout Israel protesting Netanyahu. Even some became violent. And because of his other policies that people like you know, Ben Gavid and others are, are promoting, he was getting criticism from the left. But remember, you know, now I have a lengthy paper on the settler, uh, settlers coming out at some point, and I quote a lot of these leftist um, outlets that condemn settlers, condemn those parties, but they're still very quick to condemn Hamas and condemn any kind of Palestinian nationalism. So just so things don't go too far, you will have, because even, even in the White House, you have people who are resigning, you have people who uh, are saying, you know, we can't, we can't get involved in this. And the, even the aid package, it's not that there's any money or weaponry left. You have some serious uh, pushback here for the first time in a long time. Now, we both know that Joe Biden isn't really there. It's like weekend at Bernie's. You know, people, so whoever controls him, you have schisms even there. But at the same time, in Congress, you had, uh, what's her name? Uh, the, the Palestinian congresswoman who's been Yeah, and getting censured and possibly even removed even though there were like a hundred people voting in her favor, you still have, you know, the Zionism is always going to win, but at least where it gets too severe, settlers make everyone uncomfortable because they attack everybody, including Israeli soldiers. And it just looks so bad. And then you can't get away from the use of white phosphorus. You can't get away with mass starvation and the blockade of people, you know, babies and, and who have nothing to do with this. Um, and you do have even, you know, not the hardcore Zionists, but you have plenty of Jews out there saying this is going way too far at a minimum because it looks bad uh, on the world stage. It's not like there are two countries fighting each other. There's a country and then there's like a, a mob. Even though they do have organized military forces, they don't have a country to back them. They don't have a bureaucracy to back them. Um, they do get aid from the Arab states, especially, the, you know, the wealthier ones. This is bringing all of the... Um, the Arab, or at least the Muslim countries together, including uh, Iran. Turkey is is getting extremely upset for the first time, in my recollection, over something that, that Israel does. This has been an utter disaster for Netanyahu. His political career is over. It was it was nosediving yeah. as it was. Yeah, big time. But that's, you're right. This this has changed everything in terms of, of uh, what people can say. Yeah, this is like his gold of my air moment, if you will. And I actually um, have an even like hotter take because the demographic shift in Israel is very interesting because of um, over, if you look at like the last like 50 years of the influx of more like Russian Jews and more Middle Eastern Jews and just like the Haredim as well um, reproducing like rabbits, like you're going to have a situation, especially with the ultra Orthodox, where you can have like massive people on the dole, like there, because that's like really what they they do all day is just like um, not participate like an IDF and just read Torah all day and don't even contribute to the economy. 
And this combination of just having these these people combined with like really radical whack jobs, like in the settlers gaining political power, I think that you might see like could conceivably see like an institutional breakdown of Israel from like within, not even not mentioning like um, a multipolar environment where Iran and Turkey have greater influence in the Middle East. But I really don't think that the Israel and its like present iteration is long for this world. I'm of the opinion it may not even make it to its centennial in 2048. Yeah, that's that's not a crazy opinion. Now, there is a, a, a very rudimentary idea. I'm one of the first to expose the new Kazadia movement among Jews using Crimea, southern Ukraine to create or recreate the Khazar Empire. In fact, the oligarchs, which are almost exclusively Jewish in, in Ukraine, and of course, Russia, Ukraine has always been my area of specialization for, for years now. Uh, my books are, you know, three quarters of them are, are on a topic related to, to them. That uh, now that you have, they, they actually, they call themselves New Kazadia. This is why the largest, actually in the East, I don't know what, what the condition of it is now, the largest um, synagogue complex in the world. So, you know, Israel was almost semi-neutral on the Russo-Ukraine war, not because they- I was going to ask you about, about that, Putin. yeah. Yeah, uh, because it's the mass depopulation. Remember, Jews hate both sides. Jews hate Slavs in general, but they despise the Cossack tradition in, in Ukraine. So getting these two to fight each other and having this you know, country the size of France get depopulated, which it has been, this may, and I don't want to put my signature on this yet, but this may give an extra impetus to the new Kazadia project, because that project is based on the idea that because of things like demographics, all the bad press, uh, the fact that criticism now is mainstream, no matter what the Republicans say about it, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it may not be long for this world. And uh, it would be a full admission, of course. You know, I mean, Kazadia and the founding myths of Israel are contradictory. You can't believe in the Khazar theory as I do and yet claim that they have a right to be in Jerusalem. So uh, regardless of that, though, the depopulation of that country may well be either uh, can recreate the new Kazadia idea, although I do also think that the war has allowed a, you know, of course, it's been a Russian victory for a long time now, uh, contrary to the to the media there. But the new Kazadiga project then seems more distant than ever. You know, Putin is, you know, had supported Syria, supported Hamas, uh, continues to do so. Their representatives have already been in Moscow. I wrote um, Russian populist, the political thought of Vladimir Putin. He's been a major uh, a figure in, in my career. And um, so he's he's long since you know sided with. I mean, he's a diplomat, of course, but he he sided with Hamas more or less, and it's also bringing Russia and Turkey together, uh, which also means Azerbaijan is going to be a, a part of this. So, um, but anyway, that's the new Kazadia idea is either just starting or just ending, depending on what happens. Putin's influence in Ukraine, which is going to have to be huge. Uh, will prevent that from happening. Remember, there are very few Jews left in Russia. Uh, Ukraine is a very different story. But um, so I'm I'm on the fence as to whether this is going to matter because plenty of Jews are saying now that Israel is just not viable in the in the medium term, let alone the long term. Yeah, I've noticed this too. Um, would you say like yeah? Because uh, George Soros, for example, who is like a a well-known promoter of like cultural leftism, globalism, and a total enemy of the nation state. He'll like signal that he's like against like Israel, mostly Likud. I think it's more like the Likud type style politics. But do you think that those those types like Soros were kind of like ahead of their time in opposing Israel, knowing that that the project is like no longer viable and they're pivoting to like another strategy? Well, that's kind of what I was what I was getting at, and you're also right to bring up these severe divisions, because on the one hand you have the Haredi in the in the old city in Jerusalem, which you also correctly say do not work. They study Talmud 24 hours a day. They're not subject to the draft. In fact, over the last 20 years, the percentage of Israelis, or at least Jews in that area, applying for an exemption to the draft has gone through the roof. The divisions are so deep now. 
Uh, because clearly, you know, you're, you're in a Torah Carta type. So I'm an old friend of Rabbi David Weiss. I used to do demonstrations against Israel with him. That bunch is never going to be reconciled to Israel on theological grounds. But now it's theological grounds and practical political grounds. This is what happens, they're saying, when you move ahead of schedule and establish this state before their so-called Messiah comes. And then the most extreme settlers, which, you know, their their power is magnified only because of Netanyahu's situation. You know, the Knesset is always almost 50-50. So a handful of people can push the balance either way, which is one of the big problems with, with the Knesset in, in general. And that's why Netanyahu is able to uh, pull this off, even if he's not totally comfortable with some of these policies. You know, the settlers have been, I don't care how much in favor of them you might be, they're a huge headache for the IDF. Keep in mind, too, that the IDF is now so overstretched. They have so many fires to put out. There's only so many Jews there. And, of course, demographically speaking, they're surrounded by a sea of angry and fairly well-armed Arabs. They've been very skilled in removing enemies, uh, everything from Libya to Sudan to uh, Iraq and partially Syria. So now you only really have two places to go, Turkey and, and uh, Iran. There is a authorization for violence against Iran. This has been very quietly passed in, in Congress. But So the settler movement has a power that's exaggerated only because of Netanyahu's situation. And that could change when this war is over, whenever that might happen. That could change pretty rapidly because now you have 85% of Israelis saying that Netanyahu is personally responsible for allowing this to happen. Nothing is going his way. So this can change. This can change very quickly. You mentioned Iran because I wanted to touch upon that. Despite all like the sanctions, covert operations, and other measures that the United States, Israel, and various uh, U.S. satrapies and NATO's have used against Iran to try to regime change it. Its influence in the Middle East continues to grow. It's um, It obviously has like Hezbollah and Lebanon, and now it's like kind of using a Hezbollahization type of method in Iraq. It's gained tremendous influence there, and it's established a foothold in Yemen with the Houthis, and then like Syria, um, there's a strong presence there. And it really does seem that Israel is starting to become encircled in a way. And in fact, with um, Iran now getting sophisticated weaponry as a result of its bolstered ties with Russia, and it's also getting a huge economic boost with its growing um, relationship with China, it really does seem that Iran looks here to stay in Middle Eastern affairs, no matter how um, how hard the Zionist crowd in D.C. and in Jerusalem um, shake their fists at Iran. And do you think that, like, now that the uh, the prospect of a war with Iran, like a U.S.-Israel war with Iran, has, like, diminished in light of these facts? Uh, the, the United States, I'm known for, I have my, my Patreon page where I have essays talking about the real condition of the U.S. military. And not only is morale rock bottom, but it's physically falling to pieces. They're totally overstretched. They're totally overworked. They can't get people to fly the planes. The training standards have gone way down. The U.S. is in no position to do much. I mean, it was clearly defeated in Afghanistan. No matter what they tried to do, they had to invent the whole Osama story and everything like that. But, you know, the Middle East isn't what it used to be. There was a time when Israel was surrounded. You know, Egypt and, and Syria was, was very strong. Uh, Sudan and, and, and Libya, a lot of those have been neutralized, if not completely uh, eliminated from the, from the regional stage. Syria, of course, won its, its U.S.-sponsored war, thanks to Russian assistance. And Syria and Iran have been allies for a very long time. They were allies against Saddam Hussein and Iraq for a long time. But I, I think the U.S. is in serious trouble. If it tries to pick a fight, it, it, its record since World War II has been poor, and that's that's a humiliation. I'm not sure anyone really wants to wants to push, despite what the Republicans may may have to say. Keep in mind that Iran is a first world country. It's been for a very long time. It has one of the largest scientific establishments in the world. 
that has the lowest cancer rate in the world. It has a, a almost non-existent suicide rate. You have a young, uh, middle-class, uh, very literate population with with military to match. What the what the Israelis have done is go to that list of countries that I mentioned, and it isn't so much a military confrontation, but Libya, Syria, were on the cusp of first world status, and they would have uh, reached it had it not been for everything that the uh, that the U.S. pulled. And the same thing goes for for Egypt after Mubarak um, was um, was forcibly overthrown. And this is why Turkey coming into the picture is so extremely significant. I mean, they were gonna they're probably gonna leave NATO anyway. But there's, you know, Turkey would would defeat the U.S. in its own backyard on land, uh, second largest army in NATO, and and how long has the have the Iranians been digging in and preparing for this? We know that Hezbollah in southern Lebanon defeated the South Lebanon army and the Israelis 2000 2001, uh, destroying their security perimeter. Uh, Hezbollah is is not a third world force by by any stretch of the imagination, and you know Turkey's rhetoric is getting so harsh the u.s is really has to watch everything it does here they, they, they can't handle one of these countries let alone let alone two and including one who's ostensibly an ally syria although you know badly damaged is not broken by any means and now you have a substantially large russian supported battle-hardened army so both the idf and the un which remember is largely a conscript force in many ways with a deeply divided population, and the U.S. has to be very, very careful uh, there. There's something that, you know, and not to mention it's overstretch. It's picking fights in Russia, picking fights in, in Taiwan, and of course in Central Asia. This is, this is not something the U.S. can afford to, to even start to do. Yep, that's a classic case of imperial overstretch, um, which is a telltale sign of like civilizational decline. Could you comment on this because this conflict theater, I don't think, has gotten um, a lot of attention. It's with the Armenia-Azerbaijan issue over Nagorno-Karabakh. Because some people don't realize this, but Azerbaijan, in many respects, is like a kind of like Turco-Israeli type of cat's paw, if you will, where... The Turks, there's a definitely an affinity there because of the fact that, uh, that both countries have are ultimately like a Turkish people. And with the Israeli case, it's kind of interesting because of the fact that they, um, the Mossad there definitely takes advantage of Azerbaijan and how there is a province of Iran that neighbors Azerbaijan that has a significant Azeri population that can be used as a fifth column. And there are some rumors that um, Azerbaijan is serves as like a launch pad potentially for Israel for launching like an attack against Iran. What do you make of the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict? And do you think that Armenia is potentially going to like collapse due to corruption and um, just like dealing with an external, aggressive external actor such as Azerbaijan? Well, like all these topics, I have paper after paper on, on this. It's not a secret that the Israelis and the Americans see Azerbaijan as the possible uh, launching pad for an invasion of, of Iran. But Iran is far closer to Russia than it is to the Muslims living in, in Azerbaijan. Uh, Armenia and Russia have been close for centuries. Armenia is much smaller than Azerbaijan, but the key player is Turkey. Because the only reason the Azeris won the last war, which is the last time I you know, spent any time on the topic, was because of Turkish assistance. Usually Armenians, uh, being slightly more you know, advanced civilizationally, militarily, win. Now, um, but there's a few problems. Of course, as I said, number one, the disposition of Turkey is, is essential. And we know the disposition of Turkey is not exactly on the American side. The trade between Russia and Turkey has gone through the roof. Uh, the second issue is that Azerbaijan is crisscross with Russian oil, uh, every kind of you know equipment, pipelines and refineries and everything else. So uh, Azerbaijan has a great dependence on Russian expertise for its economy. 
So, you know, because the U.S. is at a point where it's alienated everybody. And, and let's face facts, one of the reasons that uh, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 was to eject the Mossad from it. I mean, the Minister of Defense was an Israeli. That didn't take very long. They weren't going to make that mistake again with, with Israel. So it's not as cut and dry as I used to think it was. Armenia is always going to stand with Russia, but you have the so-called color revolutions there. These people who hardly even speak the language, all educated in the U.S., are installed in, in power. People that Armenians never heard of before. And I think that might be the corruption that you're talking about. But I think Russia and hence Iran win either way. It's not the case that Azerbaijan, because it's supplied by Turkey on the one hand, and therefore must be close to the other NATO countries on the other, it's just not true anymore. Russia has invested heavily there, and the Armenians always get upset that Russia is, in fact, leaning more towards Azerbaijan than, than themselves. But the Russia-Armenia-Iran trade route is huge, and that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Remember, the Iranians sided with Russia against the Chechens. You know, they, they have no, you know, they're, they're, they're concerned with their position as a regional hegemon in, in Central Asia. And Russia is absolutely key to that. They've also applied to join BRICS, and they're part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So this isn't just Iran sitting there. It's Iran part of a, a huge uh, counter-revolutionary force against the West, against Israel, against the USA. So as it stands now, um, Iran is, is probably going to win either way. It depends on whether or not the U.S. can get rid of the current president of, of Turkey. Turkey is the key player in all of this, and that's not a good news for the West. Oh, yes. Yeah, Turkey is a very interesting geopolitical player because they have a very time-honored tradition of geopolitical hedging, if you will, where they can play both sides. And they are located in a strategically important area. But I do agree with you that I think that as the more fanatic the West goes, by default, all countries are going to pursue some type of multi-vector foreign policy that's going to lean more towards the, the Eurasian powers like Russia and China. Because I just see like the West as fanatically woke in its foreign policy and just incredibly erratic to boot. So it's just not a stable player to align yourself with these days. Well, and I think the Turks are aware that that's the case. That also applies to the Western world as it is deindustrialized, as it's um, so, you talk about erratic in its behavior. No one believes that the Western economies are stable by, by any means. You know, Russia doesn't have any debt, not even after the war, at least any long-term debt. Russia and China have, you know, most of the gold on the planet. The U.S. has pieces of paper. And, of course, given their location, I'm not sure if Turkey, really most of the world, sees any future, including China, I should say, in, in trading with, with the West. And it's just, you know, it, it reneges almost every treaty, every, every contract. They're willing to uh, renege the minute it, it, it serves their interests. So, and with the way that the West is now, and by woke, you mean leftists. These are leftist revolutionaries. They've always been there. They, they believe the same thing. But really, only since the George Floyd fraud in, in 2020 have they really been able to just, you know, act like revolutionaries. But because of that mentality, they're making the claim that you're either with us or you're against us, and there's, there's no third option. So, um, you know, that's just the color. When you talk to me, that's just going to, stuff like that's going to happen. And that's how the West is. I mean, they're talking about sanctions on Turkey, as absurd as that might sound, because they're not stopping trade with Iran. They're sure as hell not stopping trade with Russia. And you're right, though. I mean, it's like the non-aligned movement during the so-called Cold War. They played one side off against another. But the U.S. and the Western world is not the same as it was in the 1960s. They're talking about sanctions on India. It's going to get to the point where they have three trading partners. Now, sanctions is a totally separate issue. I have a lengthy paper on that, you know, exactly what the law says. But unfortunately, it seems that the West is going to force these countries to make a choice. India has already made it. Much of Central Asia has already made it. And when you consider the two economies, it's not to say that Erdogan isn't going to you know, cozy up to the U.S. once in a while. Of course, he's going to do that. So long as that empire exists, he's going to do that. And Putin has said that he understands this is what regional powers, not superpowers, but regional powers do. You know, he's, he's, he's a nationalist. But this war has changed even that because, because no one 
is defending Israel, except really the U.S. and Britain. Ah, no one's yeah. defending these things. I mean, yeah. how many countries have pulled their ambassadors out of Tel Aviv? Yeah, it's the Anglo Zion, uh, Anglo American Zionist triumvirate, like increasingly isolating itself uh, from the rest of the world, and. Yeah, that's actually funny. The sanctions regime is, um, in a way, has created this block because with just how petty U.S. foreign policy has become, like where countries get sanctioned for like the simple act of like trading or exchanging like military technology with another country that's on America's shit list. That's just how bad it's becoming, and it's it's turning into like a self-inflicted form of isolationism, but that's what happens when you have these total fanatics in charge of uh, U.S. foreign policy. And, like, this fanaticism, like, literally clouds their better judgment when looking at stuff, because let's shift our gaze to, like, Russia, Ukraine. You are correct about, like, the fact that Russia has been winning this conflict for some time in Ukraine, and it's hilariously, you're starting to see some articles in the bobblehead media where they're finally admitting that, yeah, things aren't going to plan, but they're just now in the coping stage of this. How do you see the boundaries changing in the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Do you think that Russia will try to split Ukraine into like an eastern part and a western part, or will Ukraine be made like ostensibly neutral how, how do you see um the security arrangements and political arrangements being um hammered out once the smoke clears in this conflict well you notice how quickly the regime turned on on Zelensky. this man had no military experience he had no political experience you know he's just a, a jewish shill and is told what to do. Remember, there is no Ukraine. Ukraine is not an independent country. It's ruled directly from the American embassy. Most of the budget uh, comes from the Western world. They haven't had a functional tax service in a very long time. Remember, Ukraine would be in the exact same economic position whether the war happened or not. I've been writing on this for 20 years now, more than that. And the situation is that that they had a, they were they went from an industrial powerhouse to the fourth world. You're really in the 90s and early 2000s. I don't know how much more there is to to destroy. And this is part of the reason why the East uh, seceded. Because they're not paying taxes to to a group of people who hate them. There's no way, you know, and, and it's not so much that, that Ukraine wants these Eastern regions back. It wants to destroy them first. Same thing for Crimea. Their, the Crimean standard of living is, is first world now. But it certainly wouldn't have been the case. If they didn't uh, join Russia to it, you know, 95% as any idiot, even if you're pro-Ukrainian, you don't want to live with them, not in, not in a country with, with no economy. So the eastern regions and even part of the southern regions have already declared independence. No one wants to be a part of a fourth world country that's getting worse and worse and worse. Their currency backed up entirely by subsidies from, from abroad. Corruption, you know, you can't really use the word because corruption implies that it's an aberration. But no power, assuming they want to get rid of corruption, there's no part of, of Kiev that you can go to that's not corrupt and then use them against corrupt entities. The entire thing. It's like Kosovo and Albania. It, it is corruption. And like, just like in Albania, they realize that if they just say we're anti-Russian, we can do whatever we want. And it's exactly right. There was no standards. I mean, it's a, Ukraine now is, is, is a one-party state. A one-party security state, and Zelensky says, we're going to turn this into another Israel, uh, which I think has many meanings to it. It's going to be a, a security state, but that's not going to work since the Russians aren't going to stop until the country is, is demilitarized. And the West is in no position, absolutely no position to do anything uh, about this. It was shocking, even to me, it was shocking that the U.S. made themselves extremely vulnerable by giving everything they possibly could away to the Ukrainians, such that the U.S. security is very much affected by it. Now, of course, a lot of these guys didn't know how to use it. They didn't bother to translate the instruction manuals into Ukrainian, and the Russians destroyed it the minute it, it, it came over, meaning this is just a meat grinder for, for the Ukrainians. So, at an absolute minimum, there'll be a completely demilitarized western central Ukraine, ends up just really being a colony, uh, and the East has already joined Russia, and is under under the ruble, and it will develop the same way that uh, Crimea uh, does. 
I don't think, you know, the, the so-called, I mean, I have a book simply called Ukrainian Nationalism a few years ago on the Ukrainian political system and its history. It came out in 2019, I think, early 2020. And of course, I go into this at, at great length. The anti-Russian attitudes are pretty, it's only a fairly small percentage of the population. No one trusts Kiev. No one sides with Kiev on any of this. You know, 60-year-olds are being sent to the front. So that government doesn't have, you know, I have more legitimacy as the head of Ukraine than, than Zelensky does. So the concept of demilitarization and what can happen with Western Ukraine you know, being part of Poland or whatever, that's not all that relevant to, to the Russians. But the, the main political shift has already happened where these eastern regions, and everyone's going to want to be a part of, of a Crimea that went from third world to first world almost overnight thanks to their uh, connection with the ruble. And so no one's going to want to live in a depopulated agrarian Western Ukraine. And it's a, um, and, and, you know, as soon as Zelensky went after the church, which is no big shock, most of the churches there have Russian roots. So, you know, no one's going to want to live in, in what would be a third world backwater in Western Ukraine. So Russia wins no matter what happens. Yeah, so that's what I figured. Um, it's pretty much set in stone. Now, there's always, I think there's going to always be this like transnational type of lobby of people predominant, of predominantly like Jewish extraction and just other useful idiots that are anti-Russia that will, can, that will likely insinuate themselves in whatever is like left of like a rump in Ukraine. Do you think that there will be like some forms, some attempts once this conflict is settled? That these type of people will try, oh, will try to like finance like a dirty war against Russia, that to try to like create like a perpetual conflict in that region, or will they just move on to like another area of the planet to destabilize? Yeah, that's you know that's something that's occurred to me. I always think of the Northern Ireland situation. It, it won't come from anything close to Kiev. Uh, the recent events in Poland suggest that it may come from there. More than likely, will not come from from Hungary, and. I guess, you know, sanctions are never going to be lifted, but in a few years, it, it's not going to be relevant. Um, we were talking about increasingly impoverished, deindustrialized Central uh, European states, Western European states, for that matter, who are dealing with, with a massive invasion from the third world. So wages are going to stagnate and, and, and go down. Everything that goes along with it, that's certainly going to happen. Uh, and, and it's going to get worse and, and worse and worse. I think the West... To the extent that the regime continues the way it, it functions today, yeah, there's always going to be an absolute need to be on your guard from the Russian point of view, from the Eastern Ukrainian point of view. There's no doubt about it. Uh, whether they could use Muslims, whether they can use, you know, Polish nationalists or anything like that, it's, it's tricky. But it may be something along the lines of what the CIA has done in Tibet more than any, if, if that. Yeah. But there's always going to be a, a possibility, yeah. That, that's what I figured. Do you see the potential disillusion of NATO as a possibility within the next decade or so in light of all this stuff going on? Well, I, I kind of hinted at it before with, with, with Turkey. Uh, France has a history of leaving uh, NATO. A disillusionment with NATO would be more or less the same thing as a disillusionment with the U.S. And I think that's already yeah. arrived. You know, I'm not of the opinion that these elections really mean much. I don't think they're real at this at this point. You know, the Germans have banned any any mourning, any protest, anything that may be remotely considered um, pro Hamas or, or pro Palestinian, which is weird because they've invited all these Muslims in to invade. So they they may regret that in this regard. But you have no national unity in these places. The economy is is reaching you know high level third world proportions, and um, you know you don't have uh, most most of the NATO countries, you know the places like Norway and and even places like Germany. You know if the U.S. is going to be doing most of the defending, they're going to be doing most of the military spending. You have no good reason to have a strong military force, and most of the Europeans don't. I mean, three quarters of the British fleet has been scuttled over the last thirty years. You have these females in, in in places in Northern Europe and the Netherlands and you know Denmark who have never seen a military uniform before, but it's just a political uh, appointment because they simply don't need anything but a very very small 
and specialized uh, military force. So it's not all that relevant. Now, you may be talking about something like a false flag. It's certainly conceivable. But this war, and connecting it to, to all of this, has removed a lot of trust, as if there, there could possibly be any more uh, separation between the population and, and governments in, in Western Europe. So it isn't so much that, you know, it's always going to be the U.S. The, the NATO label is not all that relevant. I have a book out on American failure in the Islamic world, uh, the foreign policy of mass society, it's called. And I get into the ideological foundation of, of NATO. And ultimately, it comes down to American liberalism, both economically and, and, and socially. You know, soldiers are always being thrown in jail for, for saying the wrong thing. So uh, where NATO goes, that's where the U.S. goes. And it's going to be embarrassing. And, you know, it would surprise me if Turkey stays in NATO, or even if it does stay, it doesn't do much. It'll be like Romania in the Warsaw Pact, you know, that they don't, they don't, they don't go along with they remain uh, a member. The defection of France or there was an, an exit scare a few years ago where Italy was going to leave the EU. And, you know, bringing Ukraine into the EU is a joke because it doesn't really have a functional economy. Um, it's just really to, to steal its resources, but resources aren't, haven't been stolen already. So, yeah, I, I think NATO is just more and more rendered irrelevant. They've never been tested on the battlefield. Uh, Britain and the U.S., and even there, you know, direct combat operations aren't, you know, for the two million uh, men under arms, only a handful have been part of that. So it's just going to be rendered more irrelevant than, you know, or could they quietly fade away and new security arrangements arrive at, stuff like that. Yeah, in light of these changes where the U.S. is experiencing a lot of stagnation and overstretch abroad, there could be a natural tendency among a faction of elites to focus their attention more on the Western Hemisphere. Um, the reason I mentioned this is that, like, it's no secret the U.S. has, like, an open borders agenda, especially, like, in the Western Hemisphere. It's become very pronounced to the point where now, like, Venezuelans, because I'm actually of Venezuelan origin, though I lived most of my life in the States, where Venezuelans now have, like, leapfrogged um, Mexican nationals as, like, the primary group that's crossing the border these days. And you also have, like, the whole assortment of Central American migration that has completely exploded. I've been of the view that there is a faction of American elites that want to resuscitate the North American Union, if you will, where they want to create some supranational entity composed of like Canada, U.S., Mexico, and even go even farther that some want to extend that to, into like Central America. Because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of talk. Um, you hear like a lot of talk of people trying to boost America's population through immigration, like the one billion Americans book by Matthew Iglesias, just to compete with China. Do you see a potential pivot? by these elites to focus more on the Western Hemisphere and try to knock over as many governments as possible and, and just try to create some type of supranational entity to maintain some relevance on the world stage? Well, I mean, part of that was already done in the Clinton administration with the disaster that we call uh, NAFTA. And it's, it's tough, given the dependency of the American consumer market on East Asia, and not just in goods, but also in, in things like labor and um, you know, everything from, you know, resources uh, to outsourcing. I mean, the U.S. doesn't really have an industrial base anymore, nor is there the infrastructure to, to rebuild it. Anything that you're talking about is going to be an extremely—I mean, I'm assuming that the, the, that the concept is the U.S. simply can't afford to be involved in the rest of the world. Therefore, it's going to focus mostly on Latin America. That would be a—it's interesting— but that would be an admission of defeat that I can't imagine the U.S. making. I mean, they could kind of do what they did when they were defeated in Afghanistan. You know, declare victory, say we did what we were supposed to do, and then pull out. And something like that is conceivable. But given the popularity of someone like Chavez, who I was always a big admirer of, and all the myths and stories coming out of there. Uh, remember, uh, Brazil is a part of BRICS. You have other Latin American countries, you know, Argentina, of course, petitioning. And, you know, you have a huge populist movement. You have one in Bolivia. We, we know that. 
God, even in the Caribbean for that matter. Yeah, Bolivia just broke ties of Israel too recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, a lot of countries, I mean, I guess Argentina is first world. It certainly was at least during the Falcons War. Brazil is, is probably there now. Uh, Bolivia is not. Venezuela would be had the U.S. not, um, in, you know, at least through oil, if nothing else, if the U.S. hadn't involved itself in it. Uh, I think the U.S. would find just as much intense resistance in Central and, 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 and South America as it would anywhere in Asia or, or Africa. Russia and China are heavily involved and invested in some of these areas. Because first of all, there's more money. The terms of trade are far better. You don't have anything stupid like, like you know, IPP. So you have a lot of the continent either talking about or already petitioned for membership in, in BRICS, Brazil being the largest, obviously. So that's still, that's still a tall order. And of course, we can't forget about, about Cuba. You know, I, 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 you may be right just from a practical point of view. Latin American countries are a bit more dependent on the American market and the American dollar than Asian countries are. You know, Iran doesn't really trade much with the U.S. You know, places like that. Central Asia doesn't. But Latin America is a very different story. They were able to uh, almost destroy the Venezuelan economy through sanctions. Sanctions don't usually work, but they definitely work for a place like Venezuela that's so close in the northern part of the continent. If that actually becomes a policy, I don't see that succeeding any more so than uh, anything else in, in, in Southeast Asia. Plus the fact the dependency on Asian labor, Asian um, outsourcing, Asian products that's going to be a tall order. You're going to have to compensate. And I like how you say, you know, elites. I The term I coined was regime with a capital R because the ruling class isn't just the government. The government is only one faction among many. You have academics, you know, you have media, you have bankers, you have industrialists, you have big insurance companies. This is why they have things like Bilderberg. You know, they're informal get-togethers to coordinate policy. The regime is just another term for the ruling class. But those who are going to lose from a policy like this, and there's a lot of people who will, are going to have to be compensated uh, somehow. And um, I don't see that happening. I see the U.S. going down in flames before they withdraw from um, the sea lanes in East Asia. Yeah, I think that ultimately there's, I think the U.S. will just die because of imperial overstretch because there is a mindset in Mordor, that you can deploy military resources and other resources to subvert countries everywhere across the globe. And um, I'm just seeing a lot of these think tank people freaking out about like growing Chinese influence in Latin America and even like growing Iranian influence too. They're just losing their minds about it. But this is like a classic case of like geopolitical blowback because like when you're going to put a bunch of military assets like abroad in like China, Iran, and Russia's historical spheres of influence, don't be surprised if they respond at least like in an asymmetric manner to try to poke you right back in the eye. Yeah, and speaking of that, you know, that's getting that's getting worse. A lot of both China's and Iran's military development have been in sort of non-traditional forms of warfare, cyber and, and everything else. We know North Korea has done very well in that department. But you're right. I, I, in my Putin book, I made the claim that so many of the American, you know, the regime's condemnation of places like Russia and China are, in fact, manifestations of projection because the accusations they make, none of them are true. You know, the U.S. is far less stable than Russia or China, economically in every other way. And it seems to be almost a one-to-one -one exact, the ratio is perfect, but what they accuse Russia and China of. The U.S. is suffering from in the worst possible way. And that, ha that goes far in explaining what you said, that the losing their mind, not living in reality, uh, living in this sanitized and censored bubble where they don't really have to, um, and no one's going to call them on it in terms of knowing what the, what the real facts on, on the ground is. And the trust that Chinese have in, in Peking, the trust that Russians have in Moscow, blows away anything you'll find uh, in the Western world. In terms of every opinion poll, no matter where you go, Putin's probably the most popular man on the planet. And this is something that the American, you know, the, the liberal empire can't process. They can't digest that. 
And so that irrationality comes out in exactly what you're talking about, whether it be projection or anything else. And that explains you have a relatively small regime living in, in a world of their own making. They start believing their own press. Can you imagine what you would think if you truly believed everything the media told you every day? What kind of lunatic you would look like in, you know, relative to the actual reality? And talking about the psychological um, foundations of this is not, is not off base, precisely because their, their policies, as you mentioned, you know, the military, everything else, it's sort of like a, a multi-billionaire who one night, one day loses all his money. He can't process the fact he doesn't have any power, so he goes to his factories and starts ordering people around, despite the fact that he's pr pretty much homeless. And that's what the U.S. is, is like. It's not a superpower, it's been a superpower in a long time, but continues to act as if it is. And there's wreckage, there's burning cities at home. And then you see this projected uh, everywhere else. And the color revolution thing has largely failed, at least more recently it's failed. Uh, people are, you know, and the U.S. has lost so many battles, uh, everywhere from Somalia to Afghanistan and everything in between, uh, and certainly Iraq. I mean, what happens? You, you overthrow Saddam Hussein, it takes you a decade to do it, and then the people who you put in power vote over and over again and kick you out. I mean, the U.S. can't seem to win anywhere. Uh, Panama, I guess that's pretty much it. So, yeah, they don't live in reality. That's not a crazy accusation. And I don't think, collectively speaking, they have the psychological resources to digest the fact that the U.S. simply can't do this anymore. Indeed. Some people here are going to be in for a rude awakening, but that's how things go when you pursue such fantastical type of policies. I think let's, this is a good place to bring this to a wrap. But before we depart, Matthew, make sure to promote your content to my followers because I, I believe they will thoroughly enjoy it. Yes, I appreciate that. And um, the links are going to be in the description that I will send to you. But the main place is Radio Albion. That's where my lecture series, both the half hour on Thursday and the hour long on Wednesday, it's simply called the Orthodox Nationalist, meaning the Russian Orthodox Nationalist. And there you can have links to my Patreon page, where subscribers are the only ones who can read. I have articles on pretty much everything in, in geopolitics and uh, usually lengthy pieces. And then you search for my full name, Matthew Raphael Johnson. I'm the only one in the world with that full name, and that could bring you to all of my uh, books, both the uh, Romata Press, the Barnes Review Press. I used to be the editor there, and my books were all over the place. My website is uh, rushjournal.org, R-U-S, as in Russia, journal.org. But um, I do this full-time, and I depend on donations as well as subscriptions, book royalties, to function. This is not a part-time job. I think you well know. Great stuff. Uh, I really look forward to chatting with you on future occasions because you bring a very necessary perspective in a time of ever-changing geopolitical affairs. And to my audience, thank you all again for tuning in. Your attention is always appreciated. And with that, El Nino has spoken.